Hope you and rested well and had a good breakfast. And I know you're looking forward to getting home too, and maybe your own bed. And uh, just uh, what life has. I mean, Brother Dewey noticed I was coveting the chocolates, so he let me have the leftovers. Thank you very much. I was really feeling bad about that. Not really. I wasn't. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, at the Q&A, I'll make some closing comments, too. But uh, we're going to look at Habakkuk this morning. And before I do, uh, let's just open our hearts in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the riches of your word. And Lord, I'm, I'm a cracked clay vessel with halting speech that's an attempt, attempting to help me and these brethren here to see some of the relevant and life-impacting truths in these prophets. But I thank you that you gave these truths through your prophetic individuals with this eternally significant message that should encourage and challenge our hearts. I stand before these brethren with an awesome and lofty message in your word. And I thank you that this humble servant can be a small part of bringing that word to bear. But I want to make sure I honor you as the awesome God who gave us this precious word. And Lord, I thank you for these brethren. I pray you'd give them strength and enable them by your spirit to go home and keep honoring your name and but help us, Lord, to just keep making progress in how we do that more vividly, more clearly. Lift up your surpassing character to those around us, those near and then further out. I pray your spirit would take these words and both encourage and convict our hearts. Mine too. And I do pray that you'd hide your servant behind the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. So the sermon title is, Who is Writing the Script? You see that in your outline, and just to help us think about that concept, most of us here have enjoyed a good play, an interesting movie, have read a good book, and maybe along the way we've been moved to tears by the passion of a certain moment in that book or play. We've felt anger at the inequity or injustice experienced by some member of the story. We've rejoiced at the good fortune depicted on the screen or the stage. In other words, that script of that movie, that play, the, the book delivered by the writer or those cast members touched our lives. Having a well-written book grabs the heart, confronts, encourages, strengthens, challenges. And the script writer composed that script, wrote that script, uh, wrote that book, had that movie to accomplish those ends. And even our service this morning had a, a version of a script, the worship Team carefully sought to direct our attention toward God in worship, and thank you for that. I appreciate your warming my hearts and encouraging me with lofty truths. Team leader probably chose certain songs for a specific purpose. The worship team knew that we'd walk into this room with a number of things in our mind. Maybe it's the kids and their behavior and not sleeping last night and your unhappiness with them, or it could be the challenges waiting before you in the coming week, whatever it is. The, that the parts of this service this morning and, and the way it was put together was this desire to turn our attention to 
our great and awesome God instead of our problems, challenge, pressures around us. So whether it's books, plays, movies, even an organized church service or meeting like this, script writing can have a powerful impact on its recipients. In that regard, I want to ask you a question. On the stage of life, it's kind of a duh question, but on the stage of life, who do you believe is writing the script for our lives? Well, the obvious answer, of course, is that God is writing the script in our lives. But here, here's the bigger question. Does the script of life that God is writing need our approval, need to satisfy our sense of justice or fairness? That's the tough pill to swallow. I'm asking this because there are moments in life when the script we're living out that God is writing in our lives is hard to accept. Certain experiences or circumstances in life push us what we think is beyond comprehension. So I'm not sure where you're at, but what do you think about the script God has been or is writing in your life or in the life of those you love? Where do you turn in the face of various difficulties that we might face where we encounter a script that is not anything we want? To God be the glory. We have a loving Lord who, belo- who longs to take us into his embrace and to offer us genuine hope. And if nothing else, I hope through our time together this morning, you can walk out here sincerely believing that regardless of what we experience in life, God is worthy of our trust as the perfect scriptwriter. And that's the challenge we face is really letting that percolate into our heart. You've talked to people, I've talked to people, and I've prayed with them about the script God is writing in their life that they would rather not have. And I'm praying that God would help them see that God is a good God who loves them and cares for them and is worthy of our trust in walking through those circumstances. Well, the prophet Habakkuk, this prophet you may not have read lately, you know one of those minor unimportant prophets? Nah, nah, minor doesn't mean unimportant, but they're smaller. But in Habakkuk, he addresses this issue for us and gives us a glimpse of the struggle he himself experienced with the script God was writing. Sometimes he too wrestled with the sometimes, the, he wrestled with the sometimes painful realities of life. Some things did not seem right to him. And even through his heart struggles, he comes to accept the always comforting reality of God. And so those are the two things we'll look at this morning. You'll see them in the outline point. So we're going to start in chapter 1 and 2 with the sometimes painful reality of life. Habakkuk lived in the final days of Judah. They're on the slippery slope to destruction. Right soon after the, it seems like the reign of King Josiah, the northern kingdom had already been taken into exile by Assyria about 80 years before. And in the midst of a number of wicked kings, there were two kings in the southern kingdom, two bright lights, Hezekiah and then Josiah, who instituted kind of reformations. They tried to turn the people back to the Lord, to a place of obedience, and there seemed to be some success, but sadly, Soon after they died, those reforms were forgotten and the people reverted back into their trench of covenant treachery. They returned to their wicked ways. And based on some clues that I'm not going to pursue here today, Habakkuk, it seems, lived in in in, in the country, the land of Judah, shortly after the Reformation accomplished by Josiah. And he witnessed the wickedness and the rebellion of God's chosen people. How quickly they returned from some semblance of 
covenant obedience to covenant treachery. And that brings us to the first subsection there, verses 2 to 4, his first complaint. Why does evil in Judah remain unpunished? How long, Lord, must I cry for help, and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. As a godly worshiper of the Lord, Habakkuk's heart is heavy because of the prevalence of wickedness around him. From his complaint, it's clear that he had repeatedly asked the Lord to rain judgment down upon the wicked Judean society. And in agony, he cries out, how long, how long will it be before you act, God? Up to this point, Habakkuk feels he'd received no divine response. We can look at another example. I'll just read it for you. There's a psalm, a Psalm 13. I'll just read it. Uh, also expresses bewilderment at the Lord's apparent inactivity in the face of the brutality done by the enemies of the writer. In Psalm 13, 1 and 2, this is what the psalmist writes, and you can feel the angst. A psalm of David, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day of sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? He was struggling with the script God was writing in his life. When was God going to intervene? When was God going to deliver him from these challenging circumstances. And like the psalmist, Habakkuk agonized over the apparent delay in God's response to this wickedness. And he points out a couple of things about this wickedness. First of all, the perversity of the injustice. Habakkuk uses, uses six different Hebrew words to describe the violent acts of injustice occurring all around him. And, and I want you to understand, these are Israelite on Israelite acts of violence. So let's say you live near the roughest part of Seattle, and you're hearing all the time of crimes that happen in Seattle that are sad and distressing. Now, let's take all those six words of injustice and violence and put them into Living Hope Bible Church. You know, and all this is happening within Living Hope Bible Church. You'd be like, what? How could that be? It was in the community of Israel, God's covenant people, people who were called to honor God in the way they cared for one another, love your neighbor as yourself. To put God on display in the way they pursued each other because that would be the radically different thing that the world would be challenged by. I mean, injustice, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, conflict is characterizing Israelite relationships around Habakkuk. And in spite of Josiah's reforms, Israelite society was still infected by injustice and violence. I'll just read a couple passages to you over in Micah 7. How sad for me, for I am one like one who, when the summer food has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig, which I crave. Godly people have vanished from the land. There's no one upright among the people. All of them waiting to ambush, to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. These are Israelites on Israelites. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The, wick, the official and the judge demand a bribe. The power, when the powerful man communicates his desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than the hedge of thorns. 
Don't rely on a friend. Don't trust in a close companion. Seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother. And a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Whoa. That's kind of like the, the situation. A little different time period, but it sounds very much like what Habakkuk is struggling with. So, so that's the perversity of this injustice, verses 2 and 3. Look at the significance or the impact of this justice in verse 4. In that first expression, this is why the law is ineffective. Other translations is ignored, is paralyzed, lacks power. That verb is ineffective is also used to describe Jacob's shocked reaction at hearing the news that Joseph was alive. Remember, Jacob had these sons, but his favorite sons were, were Joseph and Benjamin, when the, when the boys who sold their brother into slavery, but took an animal and killed the animal and sprinkled its blood on Joseph's coat of many colors, brought it back to dad, to Jacob, and kind of added, acted like they were sad, and this is what happened to Joseph, and here's the coat that survived. And J Jacob hears the news that Joseph was dead and his heart broken. And then a decade and a half later, after all the things that Joseph went through in Egypt, and he's finally, God's providence, and it's amazing, he's exalted to the second place in the, in the Egyptian kingdom. And, and eventually the, the other sons, the other 11 sons of Jacob come down to Egypt, and eventually in their second or third trip down, Joseph reveals himself to them. I have to imagine that was a bit of a shock. And then they go back to dad, who they'd lied to. They broke his heart. And it says in Genesis 45, 26, as Jacob was stunned by the unbelievable news that Joseph was alive. He was unable to even speak. He was unable to respond. It says his heart was numb, ineffective, paralyzed, rendered useless. He was frozen in shock. Here in our passage, Moses, uh, uh, Habakkuk was saying that the law is numb like hands that are falling asleep or are frozen. Now, I grew up in snow country south of Buffalo for, until I went to college, and then I spent 17 or 20 years in Minnesota, which is the icebox, and, you know, my wife grew up in the mountains of Montana, so we knew snow will be there this winter. And so if you've spent any time in that part of the country that gets very cold, you might have experienced the, the frozenness that this verb implies. We had a number of days in the winter when the temperature was 20 below zero without factory in wind chill. If you're outside for a short time, even a short time without gloves, your hands would become very cold and would not function very well. They'd be like paws. And you can't pick up stuff because they're just not working right. The cold rendered them ineffective. And like hands rendered useless by the cold, the operation of God's law in the life of Israel at the time of Habakkuk was paralyzed. The law is no longer an operational standard for right and wrong. You have true justice that doesn't prevail in verse 4. And perverted justice rules the day. And this is like bad news and really bad news. And the back it cries out, when is God going to do something about these abominations? God, we need an adjustment in the script. And he's been asking for it for a period of time. Now God answers. He had a plan. It wasn't the back request that triggered the plan. He has a plan to bring, bring on. And this is still, if, if I'm writing about where we would date Habakkuk, it's still like 60 years away 
but he has a plan. God's answer, letter B, in your notes, God will use the Babylonians to punish Judah. In his reply to Habakkuk, the Lord seizes upon the very words that Habakkuk used. If you look at verse 3, he says, Lord, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate or behold? Wrong. He uses two words for look, see, to look and behold. Wrong. Look at verse 5, God's answer. Look at the nations and observe. Same two verbs. A bit of a word play. Why do you maybe look at and observe? Well, look and observe. You don't want to look at and observe. I understand the pain and the angst going on around you, but look and observe. Be utterly astounded what God's going to do in response to the prophets complaining to God. Complaint, God has shown him that God has shown him nothing but injustice. God affirms that he will show Habakkuk. He will make him see the resolution of his dilemma. But God's plan was going to be quite shocking for Habakkuk. God intends to use the mighty and evil and violent Babylonian empire to bring judgment upon his covenant nation. Listen to the description of them in verses 6 to 11. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces and to seize territory on its, not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty are stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen who come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour and all of them come to do violence. Remember we talked about wordplay the other day. This is one of the examples that Habakkuk was moaning and groaning about uh, the violence that characterized Judean society. And God is bringing a violent nation to judge them because the, covenant ma- the, 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 the punishment matches the crime. So verse 9, all of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress, build siege ramps to camper, capture it. They sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty and their strength is their God. They're a proud, self-glorifying people. So that brings us to letter C. The, the third sub-point is Habakkuk's second complaint. Okay, God, I want you to intervene, but no, 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 not like that, God. How can you do this? 121 to 2-1. In the next set of verses, it's like Habakkuk is saying, wait a minute, God. And it seems that Habakkuk's sense of justice is being tensed. How could a just God, who is asking for his people to submit to his sovereignty, use wicked Babylon to punish a people more righteous than they are? I mean, they're just pagans worshiping other gods. From Habakkuk's perspective, it would be fair to say that for him, the cure was worse than the, than the disease. The problem of, he, he's like he's saying, the problem of your apparent silence with regard to the pervasive wickedness in Judah is nothing compared to your intention to use this vile and pagan empire as an instrument of your righteous judgment. It's almost like saying, you can't do that, God. Struggling with God's script. Now, I want you to realize in verse 12 what Habakkuk is doing. He's not, he's not shaking his fist in God's face. He's not really saying you, you can't do it ultimately, but in his heart, it's like, shouldn't? 
<laughs> so Habakkuk is not questioning the Lord's right to judge his covenant nation. He was confident that the Babylon, Babylonians were going to come at God's direction and wouldn't be able to overstep the boundaries of God's sovereign will. He says in verse 12, Are you not from eternity, Yahweh my God, my Holy One, you will not die? Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment, my rock, you destined them to punish us. So there's some respect there. He recognizes God's sovereign direction going on. And he says there, but about not dying, he had no doubt God would preserve a remnant. He was not going to totally wipe out, of his, wipe out his people, but there's still this tension in his mind. It will surely... Surely it was neither a script he was expecting nor one he would have written. Have you ever been in that spot where God's writing a script in your life and, okay, it, it, it seems totally apparent that this is part of your plan, but I'm absolutely confounded. I, I can't connect the dots. I can't add two plus two and get four. And there is an answer we're going to see at the end. And it's going to be, I'm going to trust you, God, as God who knows, and maybe in heaven I'll find out, but I'm going to keep trusting you as the good God who's doing his will, even though I don't understand. So Habakkuk, though, is not at that point yet. So he laments over the situation, and again, he's not shaking his fist in God's face, but he's not accusing God of wrongdoing, but he can't resolve the tension that he receives between his understanding of the holiness of God, the righteousness, and the justice of God, along with the Lord's intention to use the wicked Babylonians as his instrument of judgment of the less wicked Israelites. How does that, how does that work out well? How is that the, what's best for us done by loving God? And so what he does, he kind of paints a, a picture he, to, to express this battle going on within him, to depict how his this divine intention offended his sense of justice. He creates a scenario of, of an ocean full of living creatures. And human society was like the fish and sea creatures that inhabited the, the sea. And, and the wicked Babylonians were like fishermen who, with their nets and their hooks, they gathered all kinds of fish as a harvest. And their hooks and their nets. So he says... You have made mankind, verse 14, like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them all with their dragnet, gather them in their fishing net. And that is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. By these things, their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? Will there ever be an end? Are they going to be harvesting people across the world at as long as they want to, do the nations simply serve to gratify the Babylonians' greed for economic prosperity and international supremacy? Is that what this is all about? It doesn't seem just that we're the fish in the net and on the hook. See, you can see he's struggling, right? There's angst here. And the, but, he, but he says, praise God, in verse 1, he determines to wait. He says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself in the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. So he's trying to learn. He's trying to listen. In spite of his perplexity, he's determined to wait patiently for further revelation. He has a teachable spirit, and yet he struggles. And God's answer is, Habakkuk, I have a plan. And my plan is that no, Babylon will not 
be able to exert her influence for all time. The humanity of the world aren't simply food for them to eat. In fact, I'll punish them. In chapter 2, verses 2 to 20. In verses 2 to 4, Habakkuk contrasts the arrogance of the Babylonians with the faithfulness he expects from the upright. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie, though it delays and wait for it, wait for it, since it will be certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego, the Babylonians, the ones that Habakkuk is complaining about, his ego is inflated and he is without integrity. He is not the one that I'm honoring here. But the righteous one will live by his faith or faithfulness. Now, what I want you to realize here is um, he's contrasting the arrogance of the Babylonians with the faithfulness he expects from the upright. His ultimate objective is to refine God's people to make them who they need to be. The judgment he brings on them through the Babylonians is not the end of God's story for them. It's meant to refine them and push them along to where they would want to honor God's name and live in a way that puts him on display, his character on display. So when the righteous will live by his faith. Now, I think, I think Paul uses the verse correctly, of course, in, in, in Romans. And I think the word here in Hebrew has a, a kind of a circle of possible meanings. And he draws on an aspect of that circle of meanings. But in, in the back, I think a better rendering is it, the righteous live by their faithfulness. Because in the Old Testament... The idea of a theologically rich imputation of righteousness to the believer at the moment of salvation, justification, isn't a revealed concept of clarity. And I think the point in the Old Testament is generally more, how do you live life? And you live it by faithfulness, by a life of dependence, by an ongoing expectation that God is going to do what he says he will do. He's going to be who he said he would be. I'm going to trust him for that. And that's what he's asking of Habakkuk. Unlike their ego and their lack of integrity, I'm, gonna, I'm asking my people to live by faithfulness, depending on me, and resting in my goodness. And so then he goes on and he pronounced these five woes, and I'm going to fly through this part. Woe to the empire builder, like verse 8 as an example, to Babylon, since you've plundered many nations, all the people who remain will, be, will plunder you because of human bloodshed and the violence against the land cities, all who live in them will do that. So the plunderer will be plundered. Verses 9 to 11, the woe to the exploiter of nations. His, the Babylon's malicious plotting against and robbing other nations will come back to haunt them. Verses 9 to 11, you have this woe. And the, all these words begin with woe. Woe to those who have done these things, Babylon, who have planned the shame for your house, for the stones will cry out from the wall, the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. The whole world, including Babylon, will one day recognize the Lord's supremacy. And, then, and, and this malicious plotting against and robbing of the nations has come back to haunt them. Verses 12 to 14, woe to the violent destroyer. Verse 12, woe to the one who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Verse 14, because in the end of the day, what's going to happen is the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters over the sea. Babylon will not be the empire of world significance. God's kingdom will be. Their days are numbered. 
God has a plan. He's going to bring judgment against the Babylonians in his time. Fourth woe, the woe to the perverter of nations, verses 15 to 17. Look at 15 and 16 in particular. Woe to those who give his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath, even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. Verse 17, or 16, sorry. You yourselves who do this will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. Another disgrace will cover your glory. The, the cup of judgment they're going to drink out of fully. The cup of shame and destruction. And then finally, the woe to the idolater in 18 and 19. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It's only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape, trusts in it, and makes its idols that cannot speak. Can it teach? And his point is, is that woe to the idolater because Babylon's gods will remain silent and lifeless in their day of calamity. So we've seen this interchange so far between Habakkuk and God and the sometimes painful realities of life. Habakkuk has said, Lord, when are you going to intervene in the violence and the injustice that characterizes Judean society? And God's answer is, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And Habakkuk, you can't do that, God. That's, how can a holy God make use of a wicked people to judge his chosen people? And God's answer is, number one, I'm sovereign. Number two, that's not the end of the story. Because I'm going to judge them. Because in the end, they're a nation that refuses to submit to my will. In the end, as far as who they are, where their heart is. Now, that doesn't take away his answer, the first answer to Habakkuk, right? The Babylonians are coming. Because throughout the Old Testament, you have this idea of covenant curse for covenant treachery. If the nation is characterized by covenant treachery, that God will bring covenant curse against them, which will involve eviction, being ripped out, of the land of promise and sent elsewhere. So God is acting out what he said he would do. He demands their loyalty. If they refuse to give it to him, he will bring covenant curse on them. That's still his answer. And using the Babylonians as part of that plan. Now that brings us to chapter three of the sometimes painful realities of life. And in chapter three, we have the always comforting reality of God. Verses one to 19. One's kind of a title. Verse two, we have this petition for compassion from Habakkuk. Lord, I've heard the report about you, Lord. I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years in your wrath. Remember mercy. Habakkuk knows that judgment was come. He was, he was praying for that, right? Lord, the intervention wasn't gonna be giving everybody a hug and a kiss and pat him on the head. That wasn't going to be his divine intervention, but the, the, the God's choice for how he would intervene is what he, he, Habakkuk struggled with. That, the, this whole idea of God judging was part of his original petition to Yahweh here. He prays that God would reveal his mercy as well as his wrath. Habakkuk was well aware of what God had done for, to Israel and for Israel in the past. He had intervened in, on behalf of his people and a number of times, though he hadn't witnessed those events, he stood in awe of them. God was an amazing God. He just wants God to temper his justice, which is totally appropriate, with mercy. 
And God is the one who's going to define that. But then in verses 3 to 15, you have this kind of hymn, Habakkuk's praise of God the Deliverer. At the very least, the psalm of praise, he rehearses some of God's many redemptive acts performed on behalf of his chosen people. And no doubt, Habakkuk had in mind the mighty Babylonian empire as he recounts God's repeated deliverance of his people, that God would judge them eventually and deliver his people according to his timetable. As we read verses 3 to 15, I want you to think about your understanding of the history of Israel. See if you can discern the prophet's allusions to various times in Israel's history when the Lord intervened on the behalf of his chosen people. Because I would suggest to you that throughout this praise section, Habakkuk refers or alludes to Israel's crossing of the Red Sea, the rugged trek through the wilderness where God provided flawless guidance and met their physical needs, the crossing of the Jordan River, and various encounters with opposing enemies. And this recitation of praise not only recounts past events, but is also forward-looking. The Lord knows that Yahweh will deliver Israel from extinction. There will be a remnant in the coming judgment as well. So 3 to 15. God comes from Teman. The Holy One comes from Mount Paran in the area of Edom. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are like flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress, the tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea? When you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot. You took the sheaths from your bow. The arrows are ready to use with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still. In your lofty residence, Joshua 10, at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with an Indian nation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked to strip from him from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears as warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the great waters. If I had more time, we could pursue this further, but this is what you call warrior, divine warrior language, where the recognition is this all-powerful God can accomplish his will for his glory. And that includes the, the devastation and, and judgment on the wicked. And even the, his supremacy over the elements of creation. So I want you to see that in his praise song, that Habakkuk is saying to the Lord, I understand you're an all-powerful amazing God who's intervened in the history of your people in, in gracious and kind ways. I also know that judgment is appropriate here, that my people, who are characterized by covenant treachery, deserve nothing less than covenant judgment. And it's just a tough pill to swallow to see the experience of that. And then he goes on, and this is the resolution for Habakkuk. Verses 16 to 19, Habakkuk's confidence in God's purposes. In the preceding verses, God had given Habakkuk a glimpse of the, his repeated intervention in Israelite affairs, his absolute power. Habakkuk now 
completely realizes God must do what God must do. He has to bring his plan to pass. He's God, Habakkuk is not. He submits to God's sovereignty. It's really what's best for his chosen people. It doesn't take away the pain. Look at the sobering future reality in verse 16. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. And now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the, against the people invading us. So the, he comes face to face with reality. The judgment of God's people at the hands of the, the powerful Babylonian empire was assured, shuddering with terror. Habakkuk resolves to wait patiently for the prophesied events to run their course. He knew what was coming, was terrified by that painful reality. As much as he knew his people needed to be judged, the thought of carnage and death and corpses and bloodshed all around the people that he cared for was a painful thing. But wait, this is not just a grudging, passive, grumbling under your breath resignation. No, there's confidence here. So look at verses 17 and 19, Habakkuk is in wavering confidence in the Lord. He talks about the extremity of life's circumstances in verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Now I want you to understand that verse 17 is describing some of the covenant curses that are first presented in Deuteronomy 28. So we've talked about this a little bit in our first session, but in, in the Mosaic Covenant, there's this kind of bad, bilateral, bilateral situation where God promises to be their God and demands they would be his people. He does it perfectly, and for being his people is going to be by obeying the rules of the Mosaic Covenant in an inside-out loyalty fashion. And because they're on the land of promise and in concrete existence and have a platform of life that's supposed to be enabling them to live a distinctive life for the glory of God before the world, both the blessing and the curse have concrete impact. Where if, you're, if the nation was characterized by covenant treachery, that nation would receive covenant curse. And as that nation would be characterized by covenant blessing, they'd be Covenant obedience, they'd receive covenant blessings. And here's, here's the, the, the contrast. Here's the list of covenant blessings, and you'll see that the covenant curses are just the opposite. Covenant blessing would be large and abundant families, growing herds and flocks, overflowing bread pans, abundant rain and fertile ground, productive vineyards and orchards. Here's covenant curse. Small and afflicted families, dwindling herds and flocks, empty Bread pans, sky at brass, ground as iron, pointing to drought and famine. Barren vineyards and orchards. Now let me read Habakkuk 3.17 against that backdrop. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Habakkuk is saying in the worst case scenario for a, a believing Israelite to be an eyewitness to this national experience of covenant curse, the covenant devastation that God promises a rebellious nation. I mean, that'd be the worst thing imaginable for an Israelite. In that worst case scenario, verse 17, 
we have the prophet's confession of a God-centered focus in verse 18. Yet, even in that worst-case scenario, verse 17, yet, I will triumph in Yahweh. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. Even in the wake of the covenantal curse, destruction, or barrenness of the livestock, the absence of agricultural blessing, Habakkuk declares to rejoice in the Lord. And then keep in mind, he's talking about these agonizing experiences of the curses of the covenant, the worst case scenario for an Old Testament Israelite. And what does Habakkuk have to say about his hard attitude in the face of that horrific potential? Yet, in spite of the challenging circumstances described in verse 17, I will rejoice. Is this, the word is this spontaneous vocal outburst of rejoicing. It isn't like from a frown there's a little, little trembling of a small smile. It's like, yeah! I mean, there's this celebration, not in the circumstance, but it's in the, the amazing God he has a relationship with in the midst of it. He'll rejoice, be thrilled with who God is and what God does. And although planned rejoicing is not a bad thing, this verb highlights this sudden outburst in the midst of a horrific circumstance, the smile, the rejoicing that comes to your heart and your face as you think about who God is and his, his ability and power and his wisdom and his grace and his mercy in the midst of even an incomprehensible situation. Now, but wait a minute. How in the world is a person who experiences the things described in verse 17 supposed to rejoice? Well, look at the grounds of the rejoicing. In, in uh, Philippians, it says, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, I had an old prof who called that theological optimism. And it doesn't mean, Lord, thank you that we lost our child. Thank you that my wife has cancer. None of these are, I'm not describing actual realities at this point in my life. I thank you for the fact that I have cancer or something. The point isn't always just pretending to be thankful for that thing. You have to come to that point because it's part of God's plan. Now this is thank you for who you are, God, because you make all the difference. It's because of who you are I can weather this storm. I can be encouraged by who you are. When I told you yesterday about me saying, how, how are you, and I said, well, God is good. And I'm doing well. I was trying to do that. I was trying to rejoice in who he was and his perfection and his flawlessness and his majesty and his mercy and his grace to not have to dwell on the hard things as a, something that would twist the knife and remind me about the flawedness of the world in which we live. And the point is, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh, fundamentally true rejoicing, is not circumstance-oriented or focused, but is theologically based. And that's one of the reasons why yesterday, talking about Habakkuk with that theological front porch here, porch here it's Habakkuk is rehearsing who God is in the midst of this painful circumstances. Even Habakkuk's recitation of praise in verses 3 to 15 served to remind the prophet that the God of the Exodus and the conquest would indeed renew his mighty acts with him in his time. Sure, the Babylonians would come and invade Habakkuk's beloved nation and people and just devastate the place. But guess who in the end is the ultimate victor? The one and only true God, the Lord. The Lord promised to ultimately vindicate the righteous among his people in some future day. 
And now think, think about the significance of what the prophet is saying here. He's declaring his intent to rejoice in the great God. What a great example he is to us. We've offered praise to God this morning through our singing. That is good and important, but keep in mind that we're rejoicing in God in the midst of relative abundance. Even those who feel they may be hanging on by their fingernails, finances are devastating. We have so much more than many in our world. So we can say, yeah, praise God. We're encouraged by this. What would be the story if we were totally impoverished? Roof caved in, floor dropped out, banks collapsed, no resources available to us. How much rejoicing would there be if the bottom fell out and the roof caved in? Habakkuk's God-centered focus, my point is, was absolutely unconnected with his experience of material blessings. And that's convicting to me. What are the things that cause us to grumble and complain and get upset? To distract us from rejoicing in this awesome God we have? William, William Cowper was an English poet who was well acquainted with illness and distress, and he wrote a poem about Habakkuk's affirmation. Though fig nor vine tree neither their wanted fruit should bear, though all the field should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there, yet God the same abiding, his praise will tune my voice, for while in him confiding I cannot but rejoice." So Habakkuk had this rejoicing in God. And then the last thing is in verse 19, the prophet's celebration of God-given stability. He compares himself to a deer which is able to negotiate those steep, rocky heights. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Just as a deer could travel through rugged terrain without stumbling or injury, Habakkuk would be able to endure the hardships of the coming invasion. But notice the statement at the very beginning of this verse. How was it that Habakkuk could experience this stability in the face of an upside-down, challenging world? Yahweh, my Lord, the sovereign Lord, is my strength. Now, take my word for it. If your translation says the Lord God, the Lord God is a common title in the Old Testament, that isn't really what the Hebrew says, and I, we can talk about that in Q&A if you want to. It's like Lord, Lord is the word the words in Hebrew. He's talking about the sovereign Lord, the, the Yahweh, my Lord, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God, the one who is faithful to all of his promises is my strength. So Habakkuk uses this title for God for a reason. Habakkuk is the guy who wrestled with God about his plan for his chosen people. Habakkuk doesn't reject and didn't, but didn't care for the script that Yahweh was writing for the nation. He experienced the, his experience of the sovereignty of God was not at first something he was pumped about. But now he says the sovereign Lord, Yahweh my Lord, is his strength. The God who is bringing his plan to pass for Israel, even a plan that includes using the pagan nation Babylon to carry out his intentions to judge God's people, is the sovereign Lord, is Yahweh the Lord, and serves as the foundation of his strength. Who God is, is essentially an essential part of how Habakkuk is able to live in that tough time. So we've seen in the book that Habakkuk didn't like the script God was writing in his day. 
And it seemed to him that God was not intervening when he should. And when then when he did act or promised to act, his action seemed unjust. So Habakkuk was kind of wrestling with the question, just who is writing the script? Who is it that perfectly knows the end from the beginning and will bring himself glory? Who is worthy of our trust as the all-knowing script writer? It's our loving and sovereign God. Does God make mistakes? Does God let his script get away from him? No. Although I can't always explain why God does what he does, and I've had my confusing moments, I must rely on God in the face of all circumstances. We need to say with Habakkuk, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the field produce no food, there are no, there, though there are no shep, sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So are you and I living in submission to God, the perfect script writer of life? When, when we face difficulties and challenges, do we maintain our focus on God, trusting him to do what's best? As a fellow pilgrim on the road to Christ's likeness, I can attest to you that things are not always easy. And as we consider the challenges that you and I might be facing, here's a prayer that's on my heart. So bow your heads and hearts with me as I pray. And I've written this prayer, but I... It comes from the depths of my heart. Let's pray. Lord, help us to realize that we don't know what is best in the life situations that are before us and the lives of those we love. Please, please help us to understand that you long to accomplish what is supremely best in each life. And Lord, help us on the one hand to pray big, that is to pray that you would do great things in the difficult situations you bring our way, asking for it in the name of your Son and desiring you to receive all the glory. On the other hand, Father, help us to genuinely and wholeheartedly believe that you will and desire to accomplish what is best in accordance with your definition of best. And finally, Lord, help us to have perfect confidence in what you have done, are doing, and will do in every area of our lives, as you are the perfect script writer, absolutely worthy of our trust. For your glory, and in the name of your Son, Jesus the Messiah.